Hello, I'm Katie Jarvis, and this week, Real Foot Forward is made possible by our friends at Blue Bank Resort on Real Foot Lake. If you're looking for the best place on the lake for fishing, eagle watching, or enjoying some of the best catfish in the region, you'll find it at Real Foot Lake. Visit bluebankresort.com and reserve your cabin today. Welcome to Real Foot Forward from Discovery Park of America, located up here in the corner of beautiful West Tennessee. Every day at our museum and heritage park, we inspire children and adults to see beyond. And each week, we do the same thing here on our podcast. In today's episode, Scott sits down with Julie Hill, who is the chair of the Department of Music at the University of Tennessee at Martin. Julie shares with Scott what motivates her as an educator in West Tennessee, Brazil, and the rest of the world. Hello, I'm Scott Williams, host of Real Foot Forward, where each week, just like at our museum and heritage park here in Union City, we explore the culture, spirit, accomplishments, and the heritage of our beautiful home here in West Tennessee. This week's guest is a performer, a scholar, an educator, a supporter of the arts, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, and I could go on and on and on. Julie here, who is with me here today, is the chair of the Department of Music at the University of Tennessee at Martin. Julie has received worldwide recognition and has presented workshops, concerts, and lectures extensively throughout the United States on Brazilian music and the topic of music and social transformation for black women and at-risk children in northeastern Brazil. As a member of the award-winning Kaisha and 10-4 Quartet, Julie has performed in Peru, Poland, Mexico, Brazil, Taiwan, France, Puerto Rico, South Korea, and it goes on and on and on across the and across the United States. And if that is not enough, she is the principal percussionist with the Paducah Symphony Orchestra, and she also has a little side project she's working on that involves restoration of a historic property. We're going to hear about that as well. Thank you for coming, Julie. Thank you for having me, Scott. You have quite the radio voice. I did not realize that. You perked it up a little there. Well, thank you. Yeah, I've had a lot of coffee here today. <laughs> um, so first of all, before we dive into what makes you tick and how you got where you got, tell me what you're doing. I like to start off right where we are today. What What's going on with you in your life? Well, in, in my life right now, it's sort of triple faceted, I suppose, or maybe a little bit more, but um, just always trying to help my department and the campus overall at UT Martin just be the best it can be. So uh, working on that hard all the time. Um, and then uh, more recently have been working about a year with a couple of colleagues uh, on the Weekly Arts Can Foundation, which is a, non, a new nonprofit I'm a part of, working with Weekly County School Board to try and increase the arts offerings in Weekly County. And we hope this can become a model for other rural communities across the South who have been shrinking in their arts offerings for students. Uh, and then personally, I've been working on a lot of restoration in my neighborhood of downtown Union City, Tennessee, which my husband refers to as mini Detroit. Uh, and so we're trying to, as Detroit has done, um, help our neighbors in our city uh, to fix up our little small piece of the pie in Union City. 
And so what are you going to end up with when you're done fixing this space up? Well, we, we've done, well, our house, um, all these houses are over 100 years old. And so we kind of started with the house David and I live in. We've been in Union City 14 years. And uh, we, we found that we enjoyed doing that together. Um, I'm a musician. He's a historian. David's also a musician, but, you know, it's it's a job for me and it's fun for him. And so we found that we liked doing things outside and landscaping and then home restoration was something we really enjoyed doing together. We didn't think we'd enjoy it this much, um, but we bought the little house behind us when it came for sale and we converted that into a vacation rental. Most people don't know that term. They know Airbnb type thing, but that's, you know, so we've been renting that out 25 nights a month on the average, uh, which is really great because then we foolishly bought a house down the street. Uh, when it came up for sale, uh, Miss Ann Moore was selling it and it it's, uh, was built in 1893 and it's on the historic registry. And it needs a lot of work uh, and it's probably going to be May before we have it finished, but it'll be almost a year of working on that house and uh, it will be an event and wedding venue. So we hope people have their parties and weddings there. And that one's called Historic Ann's 1893 and it's on, it has a Facebook page and it will soon have a website. And the vacation rental is called Gloria's on Exchange. We named it for Gloria, who we bought it from, and that has a website and a Facebook page if anybody wants to see them. That's amazing. So you see, you're adding real estate model to this and you're adding tour and travel hotelier. Yeah, we, there were there were two houses that were condemned that we actually purchased and had them raised ourselves as well. So we've created some green spaces in the neighborhood too. So my, my neighbor, Ray, that works for you all here, he's a security guard. He's like, you're not going to buy my house, are you? And I was like, you're safe, Ray. <laughs> that sounds like, that's and, uh, a great Ray impersonation. Thanks. It sounds like Ray. Um, so, I mean, clearly you're very successful successful and you found all these outlets, you and your husband, for your uh, creative pursuits. You know, what? what is it like to be a person who is passionate about the arts in a more rural setting? You know, you may find more people in a big metropolitan city, you know, who are into percussion and music and, and you know, so how, how have you fed that um, part of your life? Well, I have always been one to believe in that well, Gandhi, be part of the change. And how can you expect an area to grow and prosper and change if you don't help it along the way? And um, I'm originally from West Tennessee, and I lived away for a long time. What and, city were you from? Um, from Martin. Oh, okay, great. And most people don't know that. Um, yeah. Maybe I've lost some of the accent, but I can turn it on if I need to. <laughs> um, but yeah, was was away for a long time and then had the opportunity to come back at UT Martin and, and get the job who, of the lady who was my professor there, who's um, we're going to talk about a little bit later, one of my great mentors. Um, and didn't know if I would stay, frankly. Uh, was the percussion professor there only for 10 years and then had the opportunity. My my colleagues wanted me to lead the music department, and I didn't know if I wanted to do that, but I gave it a try, and they really liked what I did, and I've enjoyed it. It's, it's different in administration, and we still teach as well. Um, so it's, it's challenging to juggle everything and balance, and you know my work-life balance gets way out of whack pretty much all the time, but that's kind of how I roll. And um, I've had a few bigger programs come after me, frankly, uh, through the years, which is a nice compliment. Mm -hmm. um, but I always say that I, I don't need prestige, I need purpose. Mm -hmm. And I have always felt so much purpose at UT Martin and in West Tennessee. And and yeah, there are things that are not good here. There, you know, there are things that um, I don't agree with that I 
would like to change faster, but I have seen a lot of change along the way and enough that gives me the encouragement that I'm doing a few things for the community and for other students that were like me who needed those opportunities. And I, I don't want to abandon that. I want to dig in with both feet, both hands, with, with everything possible and, and help my community. Um, so, some of the things that you want to change, I know, are arts in the schools. It's sad to me that, that there's not more arts in the schools here in this area. Um, what, what is the um, Arts Can uh, program about? Yeah, so Weekly Arts Can is intended to be a group that connects parents, connects students, teachers, administrators, anyone who wants to be involved in supporting the arts and trying to connect some of those dots. Uh, a lot of the things that have happened with arts offerings uh, and, and those diminishing throughout the United States is, is not even at the fault of administrators nor school boards. I mean, it's all time and money. And we've, you know, test scores rule the world now. And so things get pushed after school or sometimes not at all. And, uh, you know, everyone's just trying to comply with state regulations so they can keep their funding, so they can, you know, look good to prospective parents and attract people to their community. So I, I think some of it, of course, is not intentional at all. It's happened over just gradually over the course in time. And unlike, uh, unfortunately, ath athletic boosters, uh, I think those parents have really gotten involved right away and, you know, said, well, we'll have a booster program and they raise funds. But, you know, if they canceled a football team somewhere, people would be in outrage, but if they cancel art classes, not so much. But I, I do think people care about that. It just takes a person, a group to coalesce and, and get those people on board, like, like you and your wife, for example, mm -hmm. you know, um, and just give them a means of saying, we do care about these things. This is important to us, but we really do have to say this is important to us, and, and um, that's what we're trying to do. So if anyone wants information on that, uh, have them please contact me. We're easy to find on Google, and we do have a website already with a lot of information. We're currently forming our board of directors. Uh, so we're just really getting started, um, but we're really excited about partnering with the Weekly County School Board to try. It's not going to be perfect. We're not going to have everything back during the day right away like we'd love to have, but even if we can form some increase general music, art, uh, drama, you know, and then expand that later to dance. Uh, of course, music is obvious for me um, during the school day for the younger children and then start with some after school county band orchestra types of models. That's not great. And it's expensive with transportation. But um, if you we, we didn't consolidate in Weekly County like Union City did or Obion County rather. So, you know, you can't it's too expensive to have those band programs at all those um, separate small communities um, because of staffing and instruments. And then if they were really small, the kids wouldn't feel good about them anyway. So we were thinking some county models where they can really take pride in what they're doing is, is at least a starting place. I think a lot of people don't understand that art is more than just sitting and drawing and coloring. I mean, it teaches you so many things um, that you can apply Throughout, I mean, I was a sculpture major originally, so you know there That's, there are things you can learn from that and apply. And of course, my wife is an art teacher, as you mentioned. Yeah, we've got so much data now that we can, you know, say, hey, these the students that are involved in the arts, and you say art, and they do think draw, but it's everything: music, drama, dance, visual art, theater art. Um, the the students do better. They they do better academically. They're better at math, and they show up to school. Attendance goes through the roof when 
when they're involved in these things because they want to do those things. They don't probably want to do RTI, even though they have to, but um, that it increases students' attendance, their uh, mental, their cog cognitive capacity, um, but it also gives them an outlet to feel, this is where I really feel strongly about it though, is it gives them a means of feeling good about themselves. And we have so many kids that don't have those opportunities whether through academics, you know, sometimes our athletic groups now cost so much money. So a student of lower socioeconomic level um, might not be able to afford those things. And certainly if they don't even offer those in those schools where those students live, that makes me so sad to think, how would my life have been completely transformed had not I not had general music at K, the K through five level? I mean, I just can't imagine how different my life would be. And so I, I get sad, but I get fired up and, and angry and, and just want to do something to wake people up and, and just say, this stuff matters. We've got to give these students the at least the opportunity to express themselves in these ways. You know, here at Discovery Park of America, we have the Historic Theater Academy. And so students come and they pick a moment in history. The last group picked um, um, Hamilton and Burr, and then they actually do the research, they actually write the play, oh, and then they great. design the costumes, and they actually do the performance. Somebody will be in charge of the stage setting, and, and these kids come from schools all over in the area, and one of the kids this last time when I was just talking to him said, um, this is the only time I feel happy. And I thought, man, I imagine. Know, teardrops you know, fall. Yeah, it's just like how grateful we are, and, and how many kids out there don't either know about it or don't get to, you know, participate. So that's one of my, you know, passion oh, things so, is to so wonderful get that the word out that. about that. Yeah, oh, it's amazing. So and before we leave that topic, though, yeah. Scott, I just wanted to also say the other thing we need to do is people need to come to these things and, you know, it, just attendance at some, sometimes at these events is, I think TV's gotten so good and I get it. TV's great today, but Turn off that set and go and support a living, working student or, you know, whether it's a faculty member or a community theater. But we have a lot going on in this area. And those people producing those things and performing in those things need to be appreciated. And it's great stuff. But we, we need folks to actually care and get up and, and go out and see things. Well, you know, the, uh, the theater here, the uh, Masquerade Theater yeah. is putting on Shrek tonight is the first night of Shrek. That's great. And so when um, my daughter's home from spring break, and so I was, you know, wanting to take her to see Shrek and she loves theater. So, you know, when tickets were, were going to go on sale, I literally sat in front of my computer and hit refresh waiting for them because I thought they were going to all sell out like immediately. And I, I actually saw um, one of the characters from the play. I saw him earlier in, in here at Discovery Park and he said they were about, you know, 75% sold out, but you know, yeah, it's, um, we have to change the mentality of people around here to appreciate those things. That That is an issue in West Tennessee. Well, and, and this has a huge cast. And so to be able to see all these people that, you know, I see at the grocery store or at church or at the, to see them on stage is going to be a lot of fun. I so, love Masquerade Theater. So tell me a little bit about um, young Julie Hill. How, how, what happened to get you here? What Parents out there will want to know, what do I need to do with my kids to have them turn out to be Julie Hill? Well, um, that's very kind of you. Um, I had very supportive parents, um, but I also had parents that uh, did not have university degrees. They met at UT Martin, actually, in front of the administration building, um, but they ended up dropping out of school and getting married. And my dad was 
well, my dad had a lot of different jobs through the years, and I won't share all those with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of them was truck driver. So mm-hmm. he was a truck driver, and I know how to drive everything and back <laughs> a trailer, which is great. Um, and then my mom had a daycare center. She was Dr. Baker's secretary in business at UT Martin for a number of years. And then when she had me, she stopped working, and um, she had a daycare in our home. So maybe that's why I don't have kids, but I had kids around me all the time my entire life. Yeah. And I still do, but yeah. they're a little older. Yeah. Um, but in fourth grade, uh, Miss Sandra Robbins, who just passed away this past year, uh, was my general music teacher. Well, let me back up one step. I'm, uh, first grade, my teacher, and uh, she's very special to me, and I talk to her a lot, Miss Mary Elizabeth Bell. She was just a, you know, the classroom teacher. You don't rotate for classes at that time, but she had instruments that she had made and she had them in buckets and we would go if we were good and we got to pick out our instrument and most of them were percussion instruments with sticks and rattles and jingles on them and I remember playing those instruments and loving them so I was like okay I, I like this music stuff and I wow. took piano lessons that's your moment you can kind of oh I remember the grabbing those things out of the bin I was five years old because I started school when I was four um, but I remember how much fun that was and then fourth grade, Miss Robbins was my general music teacher. And um, I wasn't, you know, bullied or anything, but I wasn't like the popular kid because we didn't have money. And she picked me out of the entire grade to play the, it was a tambourine, but it was like the drum part for the school play. It had a, it was a musical basically. And it was the, the rhythm part for the, for the musical. And I remember she said to me, Julie, you have uncanny rhythm. You have the best rhythm of anybody in this grade. And so you need to play the drum part. And I just beamed with pride. And I'll never forget her telling me that. And I told my mom that night. And my grandmother was very important in our family as well. My mom's mom. And she helped with the daycare center. And I said, I got picked for this part. I'm so excited. And I felel like I was special. Mm-hmm. And good at something, which is so critical. Mm-hmm. And mom and grandma put their money together. And they took me to the leader store in Fulton, which was like the place at the time and bought me this fancy suit that had knickers and it was like <laughs> suede. And I just was like, I, and it cost like $50 or something. And I mean, yeah. I was just so incredibly proud. So that was two things that happened early on. Um, and then I had some, some great uh, mentors. I had some, some good teachers. Uh, I had a strong female role model in Bonnie Hernan, who was my high school band director. Uh, and then she introduced me to Nancy Matheson, uh, who would be very transformative in my life. Uh, she was the percussion teacher at UT Martin that I ended up replacing many, many years later. Uh, and she taught me private lessons in percussion. Um, at that point, I'd kind of lost interest in piano. It, was, it felt too refined to me and I wanted to be a little bit crazier. Um, and you do go now crazy. I, know, well, I watch that, you. I know pianists the, yeah. are crazy now, but at the time I thought it was, they well, didn't I do that. Well, I see you on the drums. I've watched all your videos on there. Well, so. it, it's fun. Yeah, you cut up. It's fun. Thank you. I have the personality for it. <laughs> but, uh, so she taught me lessons for free at 6 a.m. on Friday mornings. She was like, "You, if you want to have free lessons, you're going to have to show up. And I was there. And she taught me and uh, my senior year of high school, um, And then I don't want to get into too much detail, but I will say that what led me from a path of small town West Tennessee girl from non-college educated parents to researching the black music in northeastern Brazil um, and around the world, I've been so fortunate to perform around the world, is, an edu- is being educated. Mm-hmm. It's getting a great education and 
not being afraid to take advantage of opportunities when they were thrown my way. So mm -hmm. being fearless, mm -hmm. um, not being like, oh, I can't do that. I don't have the ability or I can't do that. I want to stay home. But putting myself out of my comfort zone. Um, you know, I, I speak Portuguese. I went to a place where everybody's black and live mm -hmm. there and, and, you know, I stick out, but not being afraid to do that. I mean, I have the confidence that I can do whatever I want to do. And, mm -hmm. and that impacts everything that you do. Um, and, and just, um, staying as broad. I say this to my students all the time with percussion. It's a big wide world of everything you can strike shake or scrape and it's really people think it's easy and it is because that's percussion in one sense but in another sense there's this every instrument you can imagine and every genre every style from all these different countries it's overwhelming mm -hmm. um, so I tell my students to stay as broad as they can for as long as they can because the profession will define you if you try to define yourself too early in the profession mm -hmm. you'll miss out on opportunities that you would have been offered along the way. Mm -hmm. So those are three things. Talk a little bit more about um, Brazil and your passion for the country and for the women there. Yes. Yeah, so um, I left UT Martin and studied with this wonderful lady, Nancy Matheson, that I, but you know, I was at Martin. It was a smaller school. And at that time, they did not have a world music program. Uh, you know, we didn't even take drum set lessons. It was just the traditional stuff. And I felt like I really needed to go to a bigger state school. Um, the program's very different now in that way. Uh, so I thought, well, the biggest state school in the country is Arizona State University. Let's go check that out. And I loved it. And so I went to graduate school there straight from UT Martin. I was 21 years old and uh, drove my Corolla out there there with a U-Haul, got a, a hitch on it, and 1,750 miles, here we go. And it was like Mars out there. Wow. What did your parents think? They were scared to death I for bet me. they were. Dad had been out there as a truck driver. Mom had never been uh, west of the Mississippi. So she was, they put a bunch of canned tomatoes. Grandma and Mom gave me canned <laughs> tomatoes in my U-Haul and loaded up and went out there. And uh, but, it, but it was great for me because I was exposed to all these different cultures. And I played in the steel band and Brazilian ensemble and, and not just the ensembles, the students, you know. So I started learning Portuguese very quickly and Spanish there there and would go dancing with them and learning what that music sounded like. And I had always liked the exchange students, you know, as a kid, I'd always befriend the, the runt of the litter, so to speak, or the people that, you know, didn't know anyone because I would see that they didn't have any friends. And I've always been that kind of person. And my first boyfriend, boyfriend was Jorge, you know, so um, I've always been kind of a, attracted to learning about other places. And so that was a great place for me to stretch my wings. And um, my mom had gotten pretty sick. She had a disease called sarcoidosis through the years, and she was starting to decline um, rapidly around that time. And so when I finished grad school, uh, about the last thing I wanted to do was move back here, but I did because my mom was pretty sick. And there was a band directing job open at O'Brien County Central High School and some of the middle schools. And uh, I got the job there. And uh, my high school band director, Bonnie Hernan, was one of the teachers there. So that helped me get the job which was awesome, uh, and uh, kind of came back home and was suddenly teaching back out in the rural middle of nowhere. I mean, Black Oak, to me, that was my first job, and I showed up there, and I was like, am I ever going to get there? You know. And then I had to drive to the high school, but I met so many wonderful students, parents there that I see every day in this community. You know, They're like, hey, Miss Hill. We, you know, So it's nice. Um, and some of those students I taught them would later come study with me at UT Martin, actually. But um, I'm at one of my great students there. He was in seventh grade when I got the job. His name was Davey Anderson. And so Davey um, was just 
fantastic. And, and I thought, well, let's see if some, and, and some of these other kids were too, uh, Will Turner, there were lots of others. And uh, we formed a middle school percussion ensemble and we had a little steel band. So I was kind of trying to make some of that world music magic in Ob- at O'Bion County. And, mm-hmm. and it did, we did a lot of really cool things. And I said, well, there's this thing called the Percussive Arts Society that I've been a big part of, and they do an international convention every year. And I thought, these kids would love PASIC. Man, it's like Candyland for drummers. Maybe their parents would let them go. Who knows? Well, you don't know if you don't ask. And that year it was in Orlando. And so I asked the percussion kids, I said, you know, I'm going to, I'd like to take some of you all there. Most of you are boys, though. I'd need a parent to go, you know, chaperone kind of thing. And, and Davey said, I'll ask my mom. I think she might want to go. Well, sure enough, I meet these, I take these kids from, you know, from Troy and, and, Hornbeak and and we fly to Orlando and we go to this convention and oh my gosh, it was so great. But I met Davy's mom that day. We met to drive to the airport together and I heard her accent and I said, Você brasileira, amiga? And she was like, See, so she was from Brazilian, you know, and here this kid, you know, his mom's Brazilian. I'm like, Why are you in Union City? She said, Well, my husband's a corn breeder for Pioneer, you know, so we have to live in rural places. Mm -hmm. And so then I started going to Brazil with her and her family, and she really helped me with my uh, Portuguese skills. And uh, her name's Joe Anderson. She still lives here, and her husband is Joseph Anderson, great people. Um, And uh, that's how I started traveling there pretty much every year. And then I ended up, once I got the language skills, uh, Josephine was not a a musician. She was a friend helping me out. Uh, She got tired of translating all my lessons and all these interviews with people. And finally I got to where I could go by myself. And so I've been back many, many, many times. Yeah, And taking students there, UTM students, we've gone four times. Yeah, and obviously... Um, you have a passion for the people there and, and the transformative, it sounds like a cliche, but yeah. the transformative power of music it, to it, change it people's really, lives. It really does. And it's not dissimilar to what I was saying in the way that my own life was changed, although I had clothes and, you know, a place to live and, and health care. Um, you know, the people in this area, Salvador is where my research is from. It's in the state of Bahia. So they call it Salvador da Bahia. Uh, and it was the first port of entry for the slaves that came to Brazil and four times as many slaves went to Brazil as to the United States. So about 10 million, if that puts it into perspective. Last place in the world to abolish slavery in 1888. I mean, as a result, this place, Salvador, is still very black, about 90% black. And uh, it is extremely, extremely rich in culture and extremely poor in economic Mm -hmm. uh, capacities. So Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the, the... kids there are homeless or, you know, there's a high crime rate there. If you look on the top 10 cities of crime in the, in the world, you'll see Salvador as one of them, Mm -hmm. but it's an incredibly beautiful, rich place. But uh, this music that I researched called, it looks like Samba Reggae, it's Samba Hegi. They have these schools basically that take kids in, teach them how to play instruments, drums, and then they play out in the streets for rehearsals and tourists come listen to them and they give concerts and do tours. And it's that sense of knowing that you're good at something it changes your life. So they know the path of least resistance, which is selling drugs or stealing or all those other bad things, that there's a different choice for them. And so this gives them options. And I've interviewed these kids. Uh, the school specifically that I've researched is called GIDA, which is D-I-D-A, which is an all uh, women's group. Um, and 
it changes generations because then those women that are transformed, their children will have other opportunities. So this stuff, it, it impacts in a good way and in a bad way. It impacts generations. And we see that in our own society. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fascinating that you get to see that culture and this culture and you're opening eyes and changing lives in both. Well, some of my, uh, the colleagues at UK, where my doctorate is from in Kentucky, they're like, how did you get such a cool area of research in Brazil? You know, I'm like, pick it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's it's right. your choice. That's right. If you want to choose Iceland, not, nothing against Iceland. Yeah. But I, I wanted to go somewhere where the drumming was hip and the weather was warm. And you can leave with a tan. That's right. Um, so you're, do, you're obviously doing a lot of really cool stuff and you're uh, on the college campus. We're, we're, we as a culture in America are going through a lot of changes and there's a lot of turmoil at times on college campuses. Have you seen, have you, you've been able to witness shifts in what people, what kind of students you get. And, you know, I don't know a lot about UT Martin. It seems like a great school. There's a lot of really smart people here that went to UT Martin. Have you seen, and I know you obviously have lots of colleagues, including your husband, right. you know, what, what, um, what's your observations on college culture these days? Yeah, I, I've actually been really encouraged by that. I mean, my students have always been pretty generally cosmopolitan and, and liberal, um, because I guess because of me and they probably people that are more conservative, you know, since the way I'm my bread is buttered and they don't want to study with me. So I tend to attract like-minded, uh, like-spirited uh, musicians. Uh, but then I teach, for example, a world music class to all of our incoming freshmen in the music department, which is typically 40 to 45 students. And I do it so I'll learn all their names. Uh, but I also do it because I want to shake them up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we, we talk. the first thing we do is we talk about global issues. So they have to listen to the news every day. And they have to say, um, what's on your mind? Okay, tell me what's going on. And, and it's not just West Tennessee news. They need to be listening to, you know, I'll usually have them listen to like NPR up first if they don't know anything else to listen to. And they'll get some global news. And they are just fascinated, first of all, that they don't know what's going on in the world. And then they're empowered by it. They're like, man, so in Japan today, this happened and I can't believe. And then they start to form opinions, which is what they should do for themselves. And so I don't teach them to challenge everything that their parents have ever taught them. Um, but I do say that it's okay to question that and to figure out, you know, is that your choice or is that because you've been taught that for decades and it's okay to step back and go, do I think that, or was I made to think that? And, and then choose for yourself. And usually it's somewhere in the middle, Mm -hmm. you know, usually they take a little bit of that and a little bit of choose your own adventure. But with the students, the past several years, I have seen such an, and especially the last two years, I wonder if it's coincidental, not probably, but I have seen a lot of um, kindness and tolerance um, of, of diversity, of other cultures, of minorities. And I think that, um, you know, these students are seeing the news and, and they're scared. I mean, I, I could never remember a time when I would have think about myself that, you know, my own kids would be impacted by global warming or climate change or, you know, all, all this craziness that's ha- all this hate that's in the news right now. And I, I think the students are, are, are scared and, and, and ticked, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, why does, is my future uh, so, so bleak? And mm-hmm. why is, why am I growing up in, in this time when hatred and, and fear seem to rule um, decision-making by people that should know better? And I, they want to do something about it. And I, I rarely, even if a student is pretty conservative, 
financially, they're bold um, spiritually and in terms of how they feel about their fellow man. So that's been great to see. I have been curious what this generation of kids who are coming of age in this culture, what they will be like 30 years. You know, they look at people like us in my generation and look at what formed us and what formed our thinking. And yeah. so it, it will be interesting to see. It will be interesting. Um, I have hope, though. I have hope. Oh, I, you know what? I mean, I've I've... I get to be around a lot of college and young folks like Luke here. Yeah. Um, and um, no, I, I tell my wife, I'm like, you would not believe how smart and sharp and good those young professionals are that I get to work with every day. It's it's absolutely been like so inspiring no, since that's, coming that's here. That's why, that's one of the great things about the job that you have, Scott, and the job that I have. But, you know, people um, stagnate in the teaching profession. Um, but, you know, if you surround yourself by really great, like-minded young people, they're going to push you to stay at the top of your game and to know mm-hmm. what the current, you know, for me, it's what's the current percussion music out there, you know, because mm-hmm. you get out of school for a long time and you feel disconnected. And so I think that's a great way to stay connected to to cur- currently what's going on in your field, but also to the next generation. So we mentioned uh, Jorge, uh, but I know you didn't end up with Jorge. I did not. I ended you, up with David. And so David, <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about your husband. David Coffey is my husband. My last name is Hill and his last name is Coffey, but we are married. Um, I was just 30. How old was I? Just very progressive. Well, 33 and I had a career and David's really liberal. He even said, <laughs> do you want me to take your name? You know, so I'm like, well, that's just, it's easier. We don't have to change the paperwork. So yeah, go. so David is um, a, a historian. He is a, a world-class historian. He has, uh, I think he just, well, he has three uh, books that he did on his own. He's got several encyclopedias that he's contributed to. And then a textbook just uh, released uh, several weeks ago, actually, in harm's way that had three collaborative uh, world-class historians, David being one of them, and that's an Oxford University Press, which you don't get any better than that. Wow, and, yeah. Um, from the Citadel, possibly using that as their text. I mean, that's he's really getting some good press from that. So I'm uh, very, very proud of him um, for being such a great scholar and you know, anytime I want to talk about anything in the news, like we were just talking about, and I mean, I just bounce anything off him. He's a great, he knows so much. And then he's a great editor. I mean, he's been so supportive of me um, in, in every way. And he's the chair uh, at UT Martin. It's history and philosophy are in the same department. Okay. And so he does what I do in uh, music. He does in history and philosophy. Um, and he's got a really great department. But like me, he's stretched thin trying to administrate and teach and then do all these home projects that projects that we do, but, um, he's a, he's a great human being and, um, very, very proud of him. And, and he loves cats. Oh, really? Yes. So you have a lot of cats? We take in, we put out food for strays every night and we have our, we've had several houses I mentioned that were condemned. And I think when those folks moved away, their cats stayed. And so they always trickle over to the community food bowl that we put out. And then, you know, we try to keep the population down. So then we have to catch them and we take them all in and spay and neuter them. I bet we have done that with 15 cats, but it helped. I mean, otherwise we would just be, we're already overrun, but 
Are they indoor or out? Do we they have, come inside? We have a few. I don't want to sound like a crazy cat lady. Um, we have a few inside. Most of them are outside. And yeah. then we have one that got hit by a car and survived. We call him our little Lazarus kitty. Uh-huh. Um, we allow him to go in and out. We think oh. that he's, we wanted him to stay inside, but he just loves outside. Yeah. So he goes back and forth. Oh, that's great. But it makes for a, a little bit of a mess in the house at times, but we oh, love him. But, but David is the softest, you know, I would have kicked them all out, but he's. Well, we're going to get him over here to do a podcast. Uh, you'll, You'll, lo- you'll love that. So what is there's one thing. What is next? And then I know one thing that is next is Rhythm on the Rails. We're going to talk about that. Okay. But what is next for you? What's what's coming up? Oh, my gosh. We have so many events. I mean, it's just back-to-back concerts, festivals. We have a big chamber music festival coming up. Um, the World Bazaar we have as oh, part of Chamber Soleil. Fest. It's out at Soleil, and, oh, yeah. and that's I'm our percussion that. students put that on. It's their big yearly fundraiser. Um, I think that's on March 30th, but it's whatever Friday night that is um, at the end of last Friday in March. So we're really excited about that, but that's a lot of work getting prepared for those events. Um, and we just have tons of concerts. We have the Gaudete Brass uh, coming in from Chicago in March as part of our Allison Nelson guest artist series. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're just trying to make things, again, bigger and better offerings that will attract hopefully more people away from the television set out to the concert hall. And then you've been very helpful. We have a new concert series, a summer concert series called Rhythm on the Rails. We're going to have it out by the train, by the lake, and, and you and some of you, people that you've hooked us up with are going to be playing in this series. So, I mean, when, when I was contacted about Rhythm on the Rails, I mean, that takes a little work to coordinate all these groups. And I was like, whatever they need, I yeah. will do. Thank so you so much. I appreciate the opportunity not only to perform, but just to all these different ways that we're collaborating and, and forming a relationship together is really gratifying. I mean, one thing that I've observed since being here is everybody is working together so well, you know, and uh, there's so much. Well, we get much when we share, we'd get very little when we keep our cards close to our vest. Absolutely. I mean, here more than ever, you know, when you're in an urban and when you're in an urban community, you can be a little more solo, but when you're like us, anything else? No, I just, you'd uh, like to add, I'll mention on the rhythm on the rails since you brought that up, that the groups that we have, uh, perform, I'm going to use the flyer so I don't leave anyone out. Um, we're going to have our, uh, UTM faculty steel band called Steelworks. We're going to have our UTM, uh, Brazilian Choro ensemble, which is also faculty base. Uh, we've got, well, my husband, David Coffey and his colleague, uh, chair in English and modern foreign language, David Carithers, uh, Coffey and Carithers will be performing and that we're going to have the UTM jazz combo directed by Dr. Kurt Gorman on the series. So four groups, uh, participating and again um, we just appreciate those opportunities absolutely you know the mission here at discovery park is to inspire children and adults to see beyond and everything you've talked about is about seeing beyond and this will be a great opportunity to hopefully inspire some young folks with some new music hey i love it when someone knows their mission statement and lives by it that's an important thing not to just have it we live by it don't we luke um, it's very so, important. Um, thank you so much for being here. Um, you can find out everything about Julie at juliehilleducator.com. By the way, one of the best websites I've ever seen for a professional in any business. Well, thank you. Very, very hats off for that and all your other social media. So thank you for being here today. Um, coming up, let's see what Katie Jarvis has discovered for us today at Discovery Park of America. Thank you, Scott. Today we sit down with Gunnar Garner, who is a docent here at Discovery Park for America. Gunnar, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here. And we're going to talk about the Gutenberg Press, so take it away. 
So nothing has really transformed the way that people learn and that ideas have spread quite the way that the Gutenberg printing press did in the 1430s. Before, in medieval Europe, literacy was usually no more than 10 to 10 percent in the country to 30 percent in major cities in Europe, incredibly low compared to today. One of the reasons was, well, there was very little to read. There were very few books around because they took forever to write. In monasteries, they had to be copied by hand. Um, Paper wasn't efficient for things like this because it had to keep for a long time because you couldn't make copies easily. It was often on things such as parchment and vellum, which were made from sheepskin, lambskin, things like that. They were very hard to reproduce and very expensive. And for that reason, despite uh, other than religious texts, very few other forms of writing were saved for a long time. Due to the expenses and the lack of people able to read, you only had very important things written down. At this time, though, around the 1430s, the Renaissance was starting to take off in Italy for the first time, and naturally it was very hard for ideas to spread if, other than letters from one artist or inventor to another, there were very few ways to like spread your ideas to the people of the city and things like that. So with Gutenberg's invention, books could be used for the first time and produced by the thousands, and it made learning so much easier across a lot of Europe. So um, he used a movable press um, type for his printing. So Printing presses had been invented before in China and in Europe, but they usually were only used to produce either single pictures um, for, like, in books. If you wanted a scene like an illustration, you could do that with a printing press. You could try and do an, an entire page, but it was very inefficient, and a lot of things could go wrong when you had one carving trying to control an entire page. And in China, they had actually invented a type of movable press, such as the one Gutenberg used, but they have so many characters representing different things in Chinese as opposed to English and German, which only need at most 100 to capture everything within our language, that they did away with movable type in their printing press before Gutenberg invented his. So whenever he invented his individual blocks, um, which created, you could put in lines for any type of writing for a few pages at a time, he could use paper instead of parchment, instead of papyrus, instead of vellum, and that allowed him to make thousands upon thousands of pages in a single day without as much labor as previously and let him create a lot of books. So for this reason, literacy in a lot of cities, especially in Southern Europe, in Italy, in Spain, in France, went from 15 to 30 percent to 50 to 70 percent. So this was dramatic and one of the main reasons the ideas of the Renaissance, the inventions of people like da Vinci could spread across Europe and not just stay within Florence or within Rome like they would have in the past. Funnily enough, though, despite all the talk of inventions and new ideas and philosophy, the first thing that Gutenberg created with the new printing press was the Gutenberg Bible. What were some of the effects that the Gutenberg press had on religion in Europe? Oh, it was dramatic in the way it transformed uh, the way people interacted with religion and with the church. So because there's a very low literacy rate and there were very few Bibles around due to the cost, due to the fact that you couldn't really make a Bible very easily, people depended on the clergy for guidance. So you'd have to go to Mass um, at the time. The priest would tell you your story from the Bible and like his interpretation of it, and that was what you got for your spiritual guidance. So at the time, this was around the time the, Borgia, the Borgias were pope and there were other um, more corrupt figures within the Catholic Church. There were very few ways that people that wanted to reform the church and bring the religion back to the people, like Martin Luther had a way they could spread their ideas. But with the printing press, 
things like Martin Luther's 99 Theses and his ideas on how to reform the Catholic Church were able to be spread throughout Europe very easily. And with more people able to read and with Bibles like Gutenberg's that would be produced by the thousands, an individual could go buy a Bible at a print shop rather than hoping the monastery sent one to the church at any time in the past five years and read it and interpret it for himself. It helped people like Erasmus, who translated it from Latin, which was what mass and church services were held in for centuries before this, to translate these works into the vernacular of the time, so German, English, Dutch, French, Spanish. It allowed many more people to actually understand what they were getting out of their church services rather than depending upon the translation or trying to understand Latin, which only the elite at the time understood. That's why it's very important to note that the Bible was Gutenberg's first project. As a religious man and as someone who saw these effects you know, roiling Europe, this is an easy way to prove that his invention would be very effective and could make an immediate impact very quickly. It really transformed a person's relationship with religion because it became a lot more personal, a lot less communal, a lot less dependent upon the person interpreting it for you. And so it's no coincidence that within 200 years, you went from basically two denominations within Europe, Catholicism and Orthodoxy, to hundreds, like all of the Protestant denominations that we have today. And we actually have a replica of the Gutenberg Press here at Discovery Park. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Of course. So we have a full-scale, fully operational replica of a Gutenberg printing press available at Discovery Park. It was built by Pratt Wagon and Press Works of Cove Fort Utah and delivered here in 2011. It was actually a father-son project by Stephen and Ben Pratt. It was one of the last printing presses that the father-son duo made before the father's death. So it has a very important sentimental um, importance along with its importance for people to understand what the printing press looked like and how important it is. Um, just to reflect upon the biblical importance of the printing press, it ha- actually has two full-scale plates of Judges chapter 7, which is the story of Gideon within the Bible. Well, thank you so much, Gunner, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Real Put Forward. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you may be listening. Plan your own adventure to see beyond at Discovery Park of America by visiting discoveryparkofamerica.com. Be sure to also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest updates. 